coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UJ Podcast, brought to you by our great friends at my bookie. Jump in on the action today, guys. College basketball season is going hard right now, and all you need to do to get in on that action is go to mybookie.ag, use our code UGA when you sign up for a brand new account, and you will get a 50% bonus on top of whatever your first deposit is. We are just two weeks into conference play, so plenty of time for you guys to put some bets down and make some money this college basketball season. But all right, guys, I am your host, Tyler, and today is the day, y'all, that I finally get to those remaining mailback questions. I know it's been a minute. I've been promising I would get to these for, what, about two weeks now? So I appreciate your patience. I really do. But it's been a wild month. It's not that I didn't want to get to these questions. My intention was to do this like two weeks ago, but it's been a crazy month. A lot of breaking news has hit, things that we just have to cover on this podcast, and most of these mailbag questions, as you're going to see here momentarily, are the types of questions that could get pushed back. They weren't necessarily topical. So I do apologize but we're going to get it done today. Now, actually, I wasn't sure if we were going to get it done today. I know I said we were on last night's episode, but I am recording this a little bit later than normal tonight on Thursday night. I pushed it back as far as I could because I was waiting to see if Caleb Downs would pop because I didn't want to do that thing, which I've done before, where as soon as I get done recording an episode, some breaking news hits. And then everything that I just spent an hour plus recording, now nobody cares about that because all they want to hear me talk about is the breaking news. And now I have to wait like over the weekend to recover. And I didn't want that to happen. So I tried to push this episode as back as far as I could. But as of right now, it's 7, 10 p.m. Let me just double check here while I'm recording this. Let me just check my text and check everything going on. Yep, still nothing so far, nothing so far. So we're good right now. We're going to go ahead and we're going to roll with these mailbag questions. But real quick on Caleb Downs, he hasn't hit yet, but the day is also not over. And I fully expect it to happen by the end of the day tomorrow. If not sometime later tonight, I would be shocked if it really goes past tomorrow. But whenever it hits, we will definitely have some coverage for you guys. Because, you know, it's kind of a big deal to get an All-American safety to match with your other All-American safety. So obviously we will be dialed into that. But again, today it's about the mailback questions. We got a, a bunch of good ones today, guys. And a lot of these are bigger picture questions. So there's not necessarily a ton of them. We have a good number of questions here, but not as many as we normally would on a mailback episode. But I'll probably spend a little bit more time diving into most of these because they are bigger picture questions, maybe some more complex answers. But let's go ahead and get started. Number one off the top here, our question of the day. I think this is a great question to start with. Hudson, who I don't think that we've ever gotten a question from, not that I can recall. We've got a lot of questions, so maybe I'm just missing something here. So Hudson, if you are a new listener, welcome. If it's the first time you ask a question, I appreciate it. I love getting questions from new listeners or from people that have not asked questions before. So yeah, let's go with this. Hudson asks, was 2023 a successful season for Georgia? And he has successful in quotation marks. This is a very good question. And I don't think there's a definitive answer. I think this certainly depends on how you view that term success. How do you define that? And I think for different programs, it's different. 
I know on the surface, most Georgia fans will say, no, it's not a successful season because we did not win a national championship. And that's what we're going for. That is our goal as a program. We are there at that point. And I, I would, in, in a lot of ways, agree with that. But here's where I would throw maybe a little devil's advocate argument at you. Yes, I do agree that our ultimate goal now at this point is to win national championships. That is where our program is. We are one of those few teams that actually can do that realistically year in, year out. I agree with that. However, I would argue that you have to have a series of successes to even get to that point where you're in position to play for a national title. You have to beat your rivals. You have to go through the regular season undefeated or with one loss. And typically you have to win a conference championship. And to me, all of those things are successes. So you have these kind of incremental successes on the way to getting to your ultimate goal, which would be the ultimate success of winning a national title. And while, yes, I do agree, again, that our program is at the point where we are competing for national titles, and that is our ultimate goal going into each and every season, but is a national championship the only measure of success for a college football program? And this is where I think college sports is unique. For pro sports, I would say largely, yes, winning a championship, that is the measure of success for most teams. Now, the Detroit Lions, a team like that, might have something to say about that because it's been so long since they'd made the playoffs, so long since they'd won a division, so long since they'd won a playoff game that even if they don't win the Super Bowl this year, which they probably won't, everyone would still call this a successful season for the Detroit Lions. And that's kind of my point. But I think in college, it's even more stark here. Because in college, there are so many teams and there are so few of those teams that actually have a realistic chance to ever win a national championship. I mean that, guys. Like Vanderbilt is never going to win a football national championship. Wake Forest is never going to win a football national championship. Rutgers is never going to win a football national championship. Kansas is never going to win a football national championship. In our modern day and age of college football, Stanford is never going to win a national championship. But that doesn't mean those programs cannot have successful seasons. And a big part of this is people care so much about their programs. I'm not saying pro fans don't care about their teams. Of course they do. It's typically different for college programs because people have this like deeply rooted personal investment in their programs that you don't routinely see at the at the pro level. It's so deeply rooted. It's so personal to them that like, like beating your rivals, that's incredibly important. A, a season can be a success short of winning a national title if you do some of those things. Like, I don't know, let's take the NFL for example again. Okay, so the, the Bears, I don't know, they haven't been good in a while, but you know, they have some rivals in the NFC North, right? So like the Bears and Packers. I know the, the Bears have had trouble beating the Packers thinking, what, like 12 in a row or something like that? They've lost to the Packers. I'm not a big NFL guy, something like that, right? So if the Bears went, let's say, three and fourteen one year, but one of those wins was against the Packers, are Bears fans gonna consider that a successful season? I, I would argue no, they would not. But let's say that you're Mississippi State and you go three and nine. One of those three wins, though, was against Ole Miss. I'm not going to sit here and say they would say, oh, yeah, man, this is the, what, a, what a season. This is a hell of a season. I'm not going to say that. But they would leave that season feeling pretty damn good about how it went because they beat Ole Miss. And I think that's largely unique to the college landscape. So I guess what I'm saying is I think in college there are more ways to define success than there are are in the pro ranks because I would ask you like was 
this season not a, a success for Ole Miss? Was it not a successful season for Missouri? Did Tennessee not have a successful season in 2022? Of course they did. Ole Miss didn't win national title, but winning 11 games, something they had never done in program history, winning a New Year's Six game against a, a traditional program like Penn State? Absolutely. That is a massive success for a program like Ole Miss. Missouri won 11 games, beat a traditional powerhouse like Ohio State. I know we have transfers. I know we've got opt-outs and all that, but they won that game. They got to 11 wins. Guys, that was the seventh double-digit win season in Missouri history. They didn't win a national championship, but don't tell me that wasn't a successful season for Missouri. Tennessee last year didn't win the national championship, didn't win the SEC, didn't even win the SEC East. But don't tell me after 15 years of being a dumpster fire, don't tell me getting to 11 wins, winning an Orange Bowl, beating Clemson in the Orange Bowl, don't tell me that's not a successful season for Tennessee back in 2022. Of course it is. Of course it was. Now saying that, different programs admittedly have very different definitions of success based on a variety of factors, history, tradition, recent results, your potential, your ceiling, all of those things. And the fact is, while this year was a success for Ole Miss, for Missouri, last year was a success for Tennessee, the reality is we are not Missouri. We are not Ole Miss. We are not Tennessee. We are on a very different level than those teams. We are on a level those teams can really only dream about. The only team that of those three that I think could really ever get to our level at any point, maybe Tennessee, Ole Miss is not ever going to get there consistently. Missouri will never get there consistently. So we're on a different level than those teams. Winning a national championship is not a realistic goal for the vast majority of of teams in America. I would say there's maybe 15 to 20 teams in the country out of like, what, 133 FBS programs that actually have a realistic possibility, a legitimate chance to ever win a college football national championship. And if we're, if we're going to say it's 20-ish, for about half of those, it would take a perfect storm of sorts to be able to pull that off. There are about 10 teams that could realistically do it any given year. We're talking about the Georgias, the Alabamas, although maybe not as much anymore. We'll see. That remains to be seen. TBD on Alabama these days. But Georgia, Alabama, LSU, uh, Ohio State, Michigan. I would say Florida State's got that potential. Clemson, I know they've won a couple recently. I don't know if that's really what that program is. But they've done it, and they, they certainly could do it. Oregon, maybe Penn State's on the periphery there. Texas with their resources and how they're able to recruit. I know it's been a while coming to this year since they won a national title with 05, and this year they got in the playoff, but you know, they they could certainly any year realistically do that. So that's, you know, top of my head, those are the teams I would look at that could say, yeah, Oklahoma, of course. You got to throw it Oklahoma, USC would be another one. So I didn't count that up. That's what, about 10 teams that I think could go into any given year and say, yeah, we can win a national title this year. Now, some of those teams go through cycles and they're not there right now, but they can get there pretty quickly, pretty easily. The other teams, I mean, you have to like land a, a, a transcendent type player. Like Virginia Tech, for example. Virginia Tech, I mean, could they win a national title? They're a program with the support they have that it's possible maybe. But they would have to land a Michael Vick caliber guy. When, the only time in my lifetime, that, and I, don't, I think ever, that Virginia Tech's played for national title was Michael Vick, right? They had to have a, a transcendent player. And programs like Virginia Tech don't get those guys often. Those are literally once in a lifetime, once in a program's lifespan type guys, okay? So yeah, I guess a guy like that could fall in their lap and maybe give them a shot, 
but it's so rare that you can't sit here and say they're going to be able to do that on, a, on an annual basis. Year in, year out, it could be any given year they can win a national title. That's not where Virginia Tech is, and that's not where I think they're ever going to be. So yes, we are on a different plane, a different tier than most teams in the country. And after back-to-back national titles in 22 or 21 and 22, we are in that elite tier of teams that do largely measure success by the standard of, did you win a national championship? That's where we are as a program right now. So by that definition, no, we did not have the ultimate success that I do believe is a realistic goal for us. But I still go back to what I said at the outset. There are successes you have along the way incrementally that get you to the point where you can achieve that ultimate success of winning national title. I mean, this year we we beat all of our rivals again like we do every single year. We just put together a third straight undefeated regular season. We set an SEC record for consecutive wins. We won the SEC East for the sixth time in seven seasons. All of those things are successes. All of those things are goals. It's a goal for us to beat all of our rivals. It's a goal for us to win all of our games in the regular season. It's a goal for us to win the SEC East. And we accomplish all those goals. Those are successes. But then you can't get away. You can't get away from the reality that we did not accomplish the ultimate goal. We didn't hit it. We did not win the national title. So I guess the way I would kind of sum this up is, by the standard of winning national title, which is our ultimate goal, we have a number of goals entering every season. But the biggest goal, obviously, is to win national title. That is the ultimate goal. Every other goal is to get you to that point. So I guess I would say at this point where our program is, that the way that we define success, I would say no. It wasn't ultimately a successful season. But again, along the way, we did do a lot of really good things. And there were a lot of great moments. And we did have a lot of successes, but we didn't accomplish that ultimate success. So I don't know if that makes sense. I don't even know if it makes sense to me, but that's how I would answer that question. I guess it's a kind of, sort of, not exactly successful season. And that was just one question. We have quite a few more to get to, but before we get to the rest of those questions, I know we're a little long on that one, so I want to stop here real quick to tell you once again about our great friends at my bookie. College basketball season, guys, is so much fun. I love it. I don't know if you love it. I, I know it's not as big as college football. I understand that. But Georgia basketball is rolling right now, guys. And I know a lot of you are into that. And I'm telling you, just watch some other games. If you're not usually one of those guys that just turns on any college basketball game, do it. You're going to get into it. It's awesome. It's college sports. It's the second best college sport out there behind college football, in my opinion. I love all college sports, but I love me some college basketball. And you can get get in on the action, too, guys. I'm telling you, to, to pass this long offseason... You know, at least for the first three, four months, college basketball can get you through about a third of the offseason, right? So jump in on the action, guys, and it's so easy to make it happen. Just go to mybookie.ag, use our promo code UGA if you sign up for a brand new account, and they're going to hook you up with a 50% bonus on your first deposit. So if you deposit 200 bucks, you get an extra $100 to play around with, guys. So you really can't beat that. We're talking about free money to play around with. You can put that money in your pockets, win some cash, and enjoy these brutally cold winter months. So again, that's mybookie.ag. Use our promo code UGA so you can bet anything, anytime, anywhere, only with mybookie. All right, guys, let's keep this thing rolling. Let's go to question number two. This one comes from Austin. And so at this point now, we have gotten most of the players that I was told were going to announce that they were coming back for another year. Most of those guys, I think actually all of them have announced these, all the guys that I'm aware of. 
So Austin wants to know, of all of the upperclassmen who decide to come back for another year, which one do you think it was most important to get back for the 2024 season? I think there's an, I mean, all these guys are important to get back. Let's start there, right? Nas Stackhouse, Warren Brinson, Tay Ratledge, Xavier Trust, even the receivers who I never really thought were going pro and really weren't ever going pro, but getting Rod Rod Thomas back, getting Dominic Lovett back, getting those guys back, all of those guys, getting their veteran presence back on this team with all their experience, it's huge. But if I had to pick one of those guys, I'm going to go with Nas Stackhouse. And hear me out on this. I'm not saying that Nas is the best player of that bunch, of all these guys that said they're coming back. I would argue that's probably Tate Ratledge. I think he's the only one of that group that has a chance to maybe work himself into a first-round draft pick. I don't know if that will happen. We'll see what happens this year. I don't think Nas is a first-round guy. Nas might not even be a second-round guy. But the reason I think he's most important to get back is that we don't have a ton of guys on our roster right now that can really do what he does. Now, does he do it as well as a guy like Jordan Davis? No, we've talked about this many times. Of course he does not, but he's very solid at that position. I do think he took a step back this year. I don't think he was the same guy he was in 2022, but he was still largely good for us in that role. And we're just short on bodies like that. Ja Jarrett, the, who's a freshman this year, really didn't see any action, redshirted He is going to be a, a player at that spot, but he was not ready last year. And I think he'll be more prepared. I think he will see more playing time this year. I'm very hopeful that he can become an impact player for us, but we don't know that. We really did not see much, and we saw a little bit of him in the Orange Bowl, but that's about it. So it just remains to be seen. It's TBD at this point when it comes to Jamal Jarrett, and outside of Nas and Ja, we don't have a ton of guys that fit that zero-tech nose guard position. I know we, we played Christian Miller there a lot this season, but that was by necessity because Jamal Jarrett wasn't ready. We didn't have anybody else to play there, so... We had to plug and play. We just we plugged in Christian Miller there. And Zion Lowe could do that some, but you know, he's he's gone. He has gone off the NFL. So I think for that reason, Nas is the most important to get back because without him, who are we playing at nose? Like who's playing that zero tech? It's gonna have to be Ja, right? And then it's like by committee, we're gonna have to have some guys playing out of position. Now I will put this out here cautiously. I'm not gonna throw any names out there, but there are some players that might or might not be in the transfer portal yet that I think have a shot to go in the transfer portal that we could be in the market for, that we could be serious players for that could help us fill some roles at that zero tech position. Again, not throwing any names out there. Uh, and I'm not even talking about Deion Walker at Kentucky. Now that would be incredible, but that, I think that ship has sailed. They, they loaded him up with some good NIL stuff. So he's going to stay at Kentucky, but there's some other guys out there that we might be in the market for if they do end up hitting the portal, which I have to wait and see. But right now, we don't know that. Right now, getting Nas back, we know we have a guy that has played a lot of football for us at that spot. When we were turning as a third-year starter, that's huge. The experience, the size he brings to the table, and honestly, the hunger as well. I mean, this is a money season for him. It is a money season for him, and he knows like you and I do, guys. He knows better than you and I do. It wasn't a banner season for him last year. He's got a lot of things he can work on. He got worked. In the SEC Championship game, I mean, that dude got absolutely worked, was getting driven off the line of scrimmage, and, I, and I'm not trying to rip the guy, it was just, that's just what happened, that's just reality, and I imagine that left a sour taste in his mouth, and this guy wants to come back better than ever before, and I, and I fo- honestly fully expect to see a, a different version of Nas, the best version of Nas that we have seen, so yeah, he's the answer that I would go with to that question. Now, number three, Question number three here, we got a question from Michael. Michael asks, now that players are so coached up in high school, which positions are likely to start without a year of development in the program? Mostly receivers and DBs, or is it mostly 
physical positions like linemen? For me, this is a, a pretty easy question to answer. It's the positions that rely less on physicality and don't also don't have as steep of a learning curve. There are some positions like quarterback who that those positions aren't about physicality where you just got to be like bigger and stronger than the guy across from you. That's not what quarterback's about, but there's so much of a learning curve going from high school to college. Now, that learning curve is being reduced because you're getting some elite coaching at the high school ranks, certainly, but it's still a very steep learning curve for most of these players going from college or going from high school to college. So, I wouldn't say quarterback, and I wouldn't say anywhere on the offensive or defensive lines. Nowhere in the lines of scrimmage because, again, it's such a physical position. And these guys coming out of high school are the biggest, baddest dudes on the field night in and night out when they play football games at the high school level. They just physically dominate people. But they are not going to – most of them are incapable of doing that as true freshmen because while you are bigger and stronger than everyone in the high school ranks – when you get to college ranks, that's not the case. You are going against grown men in the trenches. You're an 18-year-old going against a potentially a 21, 22-year-old who's been in a college workout program for four years and is about to put you in the dirt. And, and we do see occasionally from time to time some freshmen make an impact on the offensive and defensive lines. You know, Caden Proctor just entered the transfer portal from Alabama. He's probably going to go back to Iowa, which is where he was from and where he was initially committed. But that guy was, was good. It wasn't elite as a true freshman. Had some issues, but he was good, and and he was big enough and strong enough and physical enough to at least hold his own in the trenches in the SEC. Jalen Carter, I mean, let's go back to Jalen Carter's freshman year. Like he flashed potential and did some good things for us in 2020. But even as as dominant as Jalen Carter be, became, he wasn't that guy in 2020 because he wasn't ready. He had to get a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. He always had the athleticism, of course, but he wasn't quite ready to be the Jalen Carter he ultimately developed into. So for me, it's more the skill positions. like The, the, the positions where I think it's easiest to come in and make an impact without having to sit and wait a year in the program and develop, it's the skill positions, excluding quarterback. I would go running back, wide receiver, cornerback on the defensive side of things, where like a running back, like, yeah, there, there, there is some technicality to it, but in a lot of ways, it's do you have the skill set? Do you have the speed? Do you have the quickness? Yeah, you have to be physical to hold up against some of the, the hits you're going to take in the SEC. Sure, you have to hold up, but do you have good vision? Those kinds of things. If the answer is yes, then you can play. I mean, there's plenty of running backs. I mean, Quinshot Junkins in the SEC lat, or in 2022 what, what, rushed for 1,500 yards as a freshman. You see that far more commonly than you do a, a lineman coming in being an impact player in year one. Receivers, same thing. Cornerback, I, I would largely put it on the same lines. Now, it also depends on what team you play for. I mean, Kirby Smart demands a lot of things and puts an emphasis on experience, especially in the secondary and the back end. So it's different for different teams. We talk about who actually can come in and play without having to sit for a year and develop. Typically, it to me, it's more the skill positions. Receiver, running back, cornerback. The less physical in nature your position is, in my opinion, the more likely you are to be able to come in and start right away and make an impact as a true freshman. Okay, now next up, guys, we've got two very much big picture questions coming up. And these, on any given week, could be questions of the week type questions. I mean, these are great questions. But we're going to go with Alexander's question right now. Alexander, who's a longtime listener, appreciate you, man. Thank you for the question. Alexander asked about Michigan and Washington. He says, Michigan and Washington, obviously, since they just played in the national championship game, they are not recruiting superpowers. And he defines that. He says, neither team has had a top 10 recruiting class, and Washington isn't a blue-chip ratio team. With NIL and Transfer Portal, do you think this will become the norm, or will the recruiting superpowers continue to dominate? It's a very fair question. It, this year, I mean, you see Michigan and Washington. Michigan recruits at a solid level, 
but they are like a, a top 10, top 15 caliber recruiting program. Washington, yeah, you're right. I mean, not even on the radar. I mean, this year, 41, last year, 27. They're not a a blue-chip ratio team, which if you don't know what that means, so they it's something 247 Sports puts out every year. I think it's Bud Elliott, I want to say, puts this out. And basically just counts up the number of four or five-star recruits your program has and tallies them up, and he ranks the programs 1 through 25. I think it was 1 through 25, and Washington's not on there. So I get the impetus for this question. However, I would still say the odds are still stacked against that. The odds are still stacked against those types of teams being able to consistently compete for and win national championships. I'm not saying it can't happen. Clearly, it happened with Michigan this year. But Michigan and Clemson, really, in the 10 years of the college football playoff, are the exceptions to that rule of of having to be a, a recruiting superpower in order to win a national title. I've got some numbers to back this up. I went and crunched these numbers earlier in the week. So these are my calculations. Could I be wrong? Sure. But, you know, I double, triple check to make sure. And it's not crazy math. Even I can do this. But there have been 10 college ball playoff seasons, right? We've had 10 years of the college ball playoff. 2014 was the first season. So what I did for each of the champions, I went back and calculated their average recruiting ranking finish for the four seasons going into them winning the national championship. So Ohio State won in 2014. So I looked at their recruiting rankings from 2011, 12, 13, 14, averaged those out. Just put together a four-year recruiting average, right? So Ohio State, 2014 national champion, had a four-year recruiting average that season of fourth nationally. So over the the four years going to that national title, they had recruited on average the fourth class nationally, right? In 2015, Bama averaged number one. They were number one each of those years. So it'd be 2012, 13, 14, 15, Bama had the number one recruiting class all four of those years. Clemson is where you start to get a little bit of an anomaly. Clemson in 2016 averaged a four-year recruiting finish of number 12. That was their recruiting average. Bama back in 17 averaged number one. They were Won four years in a row. Now, 2018, Clemson again. A little bit better than they were in 2016, but their four-year recruiting average was 11th. 2019, LSU, four-year recruiting average, 7th. 2020, Bama, four-year recruiting average, number 2. 21, Georgia, four-year recruiting average, number 2. 2022, Georgia, four-year recruiting average, number 2. And then this year, another exception, 2023, Michigan, four-year recruiting average, number 12 nationally. So putting that all together... Seven of the 10 national champions in the college football playoff era to this point have finished with at least an average of a top seven recruiting class with their four-year recruiting average. Six of those 10 had a four-year recruiting average inside the top four. 60% of them had a four-year recruiting average within the top four. Five out of 10, so exactly half of them, had a four-year recruiting average inside the top two. And outside of Clemson and Michigan, every one of the seven other national champions in the college playoff era had at least one season of finishing number two or higher in the 247 composite team rankings. So what history tells us is that while there can be exceptions, there have been exceptions, by and large, you have to be recruiting superpower to win national championship. The only way that you can win national championship without being a recruiting superpower, so we're talking about Clemson and Michigan, which are the only examples of that at this point, is to essentially have things set up perfectly for you. So let's look at Clemson and Michigan. What do those two teams have in common? Okay, again, the only two teams that have won a college playoff national title finishing outside the top 10 with a four-year recruiting average. Well, the first thing, in my opinion, that they have in common is the path to the playoff. It's just simply an easier path. I'm not saying that Michigan plays a garbage schedule. Now, they kind of have the past couple years, 
And hey, that's how they've gotten the college football playoff. That's how they got into the point where they can win national title this year. They had to play Ohio State. Sure, Ohio State, that's a tough game. That's one tough game, guys. Penn State, kind of, somewhat-ish, toughish. But the rest of the Big Ten, garbage, not good, not capable of beating Michigan the past couple of years. It has been a cakewalk to get to the college football playoff. And then, you know, they get through the regular season, basically, it's just beat Ohio State. If you beat Ohio State, then you get the Big, Twin, the Big Ten Championship game, and then you get to the Big Ten Championship game, you get to play whatever little sister of the poor come out of the Big Ten West that you have that year, whatever sacrificial lamb there is that year, and now you're just, again, cakewalking. You're doing the moonwalk into the college football playoff. And the same thing was true for Clemson when they were making their run. Yeah, they made, what, six straight college football playoffs? But look at the ACC. Who was the challenger? The obvious traditional challenger would have been Florida State, but Florida State was on hard times. So when Florida State was down like that, there was no challenger for Clemson. They, like Michigan, were even more so than Michigan, I would argue, because there wasn't even like an Ohio State in their way. They were cakewalking through the ACC. So they, they would win the Atlantic, then you get to the ACC Championship game, and you get to play your ACC version of the Little Sisters of the Poor in the ACC Championship game from the from the Coastal, and you just beat them down every year. There was nothing in their way. Basically, it was like, just don't face plan. So the path to get there for both those teams has simply just been easier. Like, it, it just, that's reality. It's been an easier path. You know, you could say what you want about our schedule this year, although I would, at the end of the day, look at how it ended up. Missouri, Ole Miss, two top 10 caliber teams. And then we always, regardless of what you said about the regular season schedule, we always have to get through a, a, a legit elite team across the field from us in the SEC Championship game, whether it's Bama, whether it's LSU in 2019. Half the battle, more than half the battle, is just getting there. Because once you get in the playoff, anything can happen in a two-game scenario. All right, like in a one-game setting, a two-game setting, you can beat anybody. Like if you're Clemson and Michigan, where you kind of run through your schedule, you're probably going to get in more than likely as like a one seed. So you're going to play the four seed in the in the semifinals. So you should have an advantage there. You win that game. Then you get into a one-off. Maybe you play the two seed there. But in, in a one-game setting, even though it might be a team that's more talented than you, in a one-game setting, anything's possible. So I think that's a big part of it. I, I would also say, especially for Clemson, they just hit at the right positions, the most important positions. Primarily for quarterback. Again, Clemson, you're talking about you go from Deshaun Watson to Trevor Lawrence. While their overall talent level wasn't at the level of Georgia and Alabama and LSU and Ohio State and those teams, they were able to compensate for that largely because they were so good at the most important position. I don't want to say that they were like generational because that's just that word. You guys know I say this all the time. It's just so overused, but they were elite, elite, elite at the most important position. And they had some really good skill, talent, receiver, and running back. And so they were able to compensate for some of the, the talent deficiencies that other on other parts of the roster. And again, they were talented enough with those elite players at those key important positions that when you get into a one-game setting, you might still have a chance to beat a more talented overall team like Clemson being Alabama. Because we don't play seven-game series in football. You know, like if Clemson, you know, they won in what, 2016 and 2018, if they play Alabama, who they beat both those years, won national title, Either one of those years, if they play a seven-game series at Alabama, I'm taking Bama, but that's not how it works. In a one-game setting, they had enough talent and were good enough, or they were elite at the best position, the most important position at quarterback, that they were able to win those games in a one-off. And I would say a lot of the same things about Michigan. Now, that Michigan has not had the caliber of quarterback that Clemson had. I mean, they haven't had their Deshaun Watson or Trevor Lawrence. Although I would say that J.J. McCarthy has been very, he was very, very good for them. And Michigan hit at other positions. Like, they hit at offensive line. Some of those guys that they were recruiting, they evaluated them very, very well. And they might not have been the highest rated guys, but they 
got guys, they recruited guys that fit their system. And they're still really talented guys. And I'll give Michigan credit that they've done a really good job developing the players in their program and recruiting guys that fit what they want to do, fit their identity. And I'd also say another similarity that both Michigan and Clemson had is they had good culture. You know, so Michigan right now, like you might, we might look at it from the outside looking in and say, well, what, that, that's terrible culture, a bunch of cheaters. But they are bought in, right? Within that program, they are bought in. They are all in. And Clemson, like it, that was their saying, right? All in. I think it still is their saying, one of their saying, one of their, their slogans. So even though you might be outclassed from a talent standpoint against some of these teams, when your culture is that good and everyone's fully bought in, you're playing for each other, I think that matters. I mean, you guys know, I, I've said, I think our secret sauce you know, win those back-to-back national titles, as talented as we were, I think the difference for us was that our culture was just better than others. It was elite. So I think that's how a team like Clemson or Michigan, those kind of programs that don't have a four-year recruiting average inside the top 10, that are not recruiting superpowers, I think that is their path to winning national titles. And so we know they can do that, but again, that's three out of 10, 30%. And yes, I know the most recent national championship featured two of those teams. You got Michigan and you've got Washington. So maybe there's a little bit of recency bias there. I mean, not to to denigrate you at all, Alexander. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying like I know that's fresh on our minds right now. But my opinion is that the recruiting superpowers will still largely dominate because most of those teams that have that haven't won but have gotten to the national championship, like you know, say Washington this year, TCU last year, that are recruiting superpowers. What's happened when they've gotten there? They've gotten beat down, man. Like they've gotten destroyed. They've gotten absolutely beat up by these recruiting superpowers. So yes, I still believe moving in the future, I'm going to go off what history tells us. Now maybe things change the transfer portal NIL, but that's been around for a couple of years. And I mean, this year is just the exception. I mean, you know, we've won the last two. Bama won in 2020. So I think recruiting superpowers are still going to be the dominant forces in the country. And I think here's why: because yes, the transfer portal. And NIL does give some of these teams that don't recruit at a high school at a top 10, like superpower level, it does give them opportunities to land elite players out of the portal at those most important positions. Like Washington, for example, have a chance to land a guy like Michael Penix. Oregon, who did not make it to college playoff, but got close, was able to land a guy like Bo Nix. So it does give them opportunities to get players they wouldn't traditionally otherwise be able to land. I will give you that. But the same can be said for the recruiting superpowers. Think about this. The recruiting superpowers still get the elite talent coming out of high school, but let's say when they do miss on a guy and they have a bad evaluation and they got some holes in their roster now, now with the transfer portal, they can fill those holes. They can compensate for those missed evals. So they're still going to have the most talented rosters overall because they still have, they still recruit better out of high school. And now they can plug all the holes with elite guys out of the transfer portal from other programs. that The non-recruiting superpowers, maybe they hit on a guy, maybe they, they had to recruit a guy that was under-recruited and they landed him and they built him up, they developed him, and now he goes off to one of these recruiting superpowers. I mean, look at us right now. Like We'll see how, how good London Humphreys ends up being. I'm high on his potential, what he can be, but this is a guy that Vanderbilt recruited, right? And they got this guy, had a really good freshman year for them. They put a lot into him. And then where is he off? Poof, he's off to Georgia because we had holes there. Like we, we've had some misses and we haven't done a great job recruiting out of high school at the, at the receiver position. So we just go cherry pick the guys from these non-recruiting superpowers and we just take them. And we still have all these other guys are up and down our roster that are super talented. So I still think by and large moving forward, it's going to be those recruiting superpowers. It's certainly still probably going to be an instance, you know, a given year here or there where somebody that has a four-year recruiting average outside the top 10 can step up and win it because they had just have a transcendent player at quarterback or, you know, at receiver, some of those important positions. That's probably going to happen at some point. But I still think by and large, it's going to be those recruiting superpowers because that's what history tells us. 
All right, so I know I went kind of long on that one. And this next question, I'm probably going to go a little bit longer on too. So before we get there, I want to take one final break today. And I want to remind you about our great friends at Alumni Hall. If you are tired of being cold and you want to stay warm this football offseason and you want to do it in style with the latest Best Georgia gear, there's no better place to pick that stuff up at than Alumni Hall because they have the best selection bar none of George gear that you will find anywhere on planet earth. They have all your favorite brands. They've got the Nike, the Nike golf. They got the Peter Millar, the Johnny O, which I love. They got some cutter and buck stuff. They've got Southern tide. You name it. They've got it. They got all different styles. They've got the hats that you want. They have a huge giant hat wall uh, for people like me who might or might not be a little follically challenged. They got the beanies, hoodies, crew necks, jackets, full zips, Q zips, whatever you're looking for. Alumni Hall is going to have you covered, guys. Just take my word for it. So stop in today inside the Epsbridge Shopping Center here in Athens or online at alumnihall.com where they have the same great gear because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. All right, guys, this next question, another awesome big picture type question comes from our good friend Art. Thank you, Art. Art asks, what are your thoughts on the expanded playoff? Is it good or bad for college football? With the committee still involved, it seems like we might be stuck with the same BS. Great question, Art. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I'm very passionate about this. I know that not everyone is down with the 12-team playoff. I get that. It's not everyone's favorite thing. Some people think that's ruining college football, and I can respect it, but I respectfully disagree. Now, I will readily admit that it is not perfect. With the way that college football is structured, with the number of teams in the football bowl subdivision, what's it, 133 now? It's so difficult to find the perfect solution. Now, instantly, like, basketball has done what they have a 60, well, now it's a 68-team tournament, but they have 340-ish teams, right? And football is different than basketball. You, you can't play two games within like a, a three-day span, right? It's football. You need a week off to recover. So a 64-team tournament is probably not going to be the answer. It's probably not reasonable with college football. And I guess you could say, well, we'll just cut the regular season down to like eight games or 10 games. We'll throw out conference championships. I guess you could do that. I just don't think that's going to happen. That's a, that's a bridge too far, I think, for the, the power brokers in college football. But I think that a 12-team playoff, while not perfect, is a much better solution than a four-team playoff. Now, I do have some things that I would change about it. I would prefer they're not to be auto bids. I don't want an auto bid for conference champions because let's say, you know, the ACC conference champion on any given year might be a two or three loss team, right? Big 12 conference champion might be a two loss team, right? It could, it, or a three loss team. It could be, who knows? And so is that team more deserving of getting in over a team that, you know, maybe a Georgia team or an Alabama team, an LSU team, a Michigan team, an Ohio State team, whoever, that, maybe didn't win their conference championship, they lost their conference championship game, but that was only their first loss of the season. Now, I know in that scenario, you'd probably still get in, probably still get in, or if that was your second loss. Let's say like there's a some random year where a three or four win team wins a conference championship, right? And now a two-loss Georgia team, you know, we have one loss in the regular season, we get into the SEC championship game and we lose that game, so now we have, two loss, we have two losses on the resume, maybe we get left out, depending on what happens around the rest of the country, like which is exactly what happened this year. So I would prefer them not to be auto bids personally, but the reality is there would never be a playoff expansion unless auto bids were a part of it. The SEC was fine with that, but the other conferences were like, no, we have to have auto bids because they were afraid that if there were no auto bids. The SEC and the Big Ten, I guess, to a degree, but much more so the SEC 
would dominate the playoff. We would have, what, four or five, maybe even six teams in any given year in there. So that was the price that we had to pay in order to get the other conferences to agree to expansion. Don't love it, but I get the necessity of it. But there are a couple of reasons why I love the expanded college football playoff, the the 12-team playoff. Number one, I do think that it significantly reduces the odds that teams that could realistically actually win a national title, it reduces the odds that they're not going to have a chance to actually play for it. Like what happened to us this year? Everyone knows that even if you don't think we're the best team, which I would say probably 90 plus percent of the college football viewing public outside the state of Michigan and Washington think that we're the best team in the country this year. I think if you give them some truth serum, they would, even the Michigan people might, well, they're probably a little delusional, but most people in the country would say, yeah, Georgia was the best team in the country. And even if they don't agree with that, they would certainly say, yeah, Georgia, if they got in the playoff, easily could have had a chance to win that thing. We all know Vegas agree with that because they had us as favorites over Washington and Michigan if we would have played in the national championship game. It wasn't meant to be. It didn't happen. Whatever. But it bothers me when a team that went undefeated in a regular season and just happened to lose one game in the SEC championship game, which by the way, also let's get rid of championship games. I know you want to say, oh, it's a de facto playoff. Well, if it's a de facto playoff, make it a playoff for everybody and make everyone have to play a similar caliber opponent. So that's just me, you know, get off that quick soapbox there. But the point is, we did not even get a chance to play for a national championship this year, even though we not only feasibly could have won it, we would have been the favorites to win it. That's crazy to me. So when you expand it to 12 teams, the likelihood of you leaving out a team that could really see win the national championship becomes exceedingly small. Because once you go past 12 teams, I don't know how many of those other teams outside the top 12 could realistically win the national championship in that given year. Now, there could be some exceptions. Maybe there's a team that lost a couple games early due to some of their key players being injured, and now they're rolling. Certainly, that could be a possibility. But I still think they would find their way inside the top 12 if they were good enough to win a national championship. So that's the first reason why I'm a big fan of the expanded playoff. I just think it it reduces the, the likelihood, reduces the odds of a team that could really win it, not getting a chance to actually win it, get a chance to play for it. The second thing that I love about it, and this is where I get some pushback, this is where people tend to disagree with me, but here's what I always hear, right? One of the biggest arguments against the expanded playoff, and really the biggest argument I always hear, is that it takes away from the regular season. College football has the best regular season of all sports, and if you expand the playoffs, you take meaning away from those games. They don't mean as much. They don't matter as much. The stakes aren't as high in the regular season. And I am with you in saying the college football regular season is by far the best regular season in sports. But where I disagree is with the notion that by expanding the playoff from 4 to 12, we are taking something away from the regular season. The way that I look at it, I actually think it enhances the regular season. So I'm actually diametrically opposed to that argument. And the reason I think it enhances the regular season is because I believe that it will make more games matter longer into the season. Now, I know that like a game like Ohio State-Michigan, which winner goes to the, basically, basically winner goes to the college playoff is, is what happened, right? The last game of the season. Now, would an expanded playoff, a 12-team playoff, take some of the stakes away from that Michigan-Ohio State game at the end of the regular season? Sure, of course, absolutely it would. But the way the college playoff is structured, this 12-team playoff is structured, it still has some very serious stakes because what they would likely be playing for in that scenario is a top four seed, meaning that they would get a first round bye. And that is huge. So while a game like that might not have quite the stakes that it used to have, 
it would still have some serious stakes. But just instead of playing for a spot in the college football playoff, you'd be playing for a top four seed and a first round bye, which again is massive. But then think about all the other games that don't really have any stakes in the regular season or don't really have many stakes at all that all of a sudden become far more intense and the stakes are far higher because now you have more teams that actually have a chance to make the playoff, right? Like think about the Egg Bowl, for example, okay? I know that we watch that because we're Southerners and we love college football. We're SEC people and it's a fun game. It's an awesome game. It's a traditional game. I love when it's on Thanksgiving. But outside of just pride and two teams hitting each other, there's not really that many stakes in that game. But with Ole Miss being ranked where they were coming into that game, if Mississippi State had beaten them, that would have knocked them out of the college football playoff, right? Ole Miss would have been in line to make, a, to make the college football playoff if it was a 12-team playoff. But if they lose that game to Mississippi State, all of a sudden they're out. So there is a game where we get stakes. You add stakes to that game. Well, you might take some away from a game like Michigan-Ohio State. Sure, maybe, some, a little bit. But you're adding stakes to so many more games. So many more games that you're watching matter deeper, longer, later into the season. I also think, by extension, you have more fan bases that stay invested in college football deeper and longer in the season. And the more teams that get into the college football playoff, the more into it their fan bases get. And the better it is for the overall health of college football, in my opinion. I love, obviously, I'm a Georgia guy, but I love college football. I want college football to be as healthy as possible. And I obviously want us to win all the national titles, but we also know that's not going to happen. But I, I think the more teams that actually get a chance, even if they aren't going to win it, the more teams that get a chance to be in the playoff, the excitement that generates within the fan bases, that's good for college football. It, it takes it away from like this regionality, which we've gotten away from, certainly, but it, even more so gets teams around the country, programs around the country, fans around the country, more invested in the sport. How is it good for the sport if like 75% of the fans in the country tune out after like midseason? That's not. It's not good for the overall health of the sport. So I think it's beneficial for the sport at large to have more teams with a chance to get to the playoff longer into the season. And then the final reason I have here, and there's more, but these are the three big ones. I just want more good postseason games, more meaningful postseason games. So again, I, I know that we have the best call, we have the best regular season in, in sports. I firmly agree with that. And I think we'll still have that even with expanded playoff. But one of my other arguments has always been, so you're just satisfied with having this great regular season, but like you're okay with having the most anticlimactic postseason in all of sports? Like there's a happy medium here, right? Like, yeah, we have this fantastic regular season, but our postseason is by far the worst. It's the worst. So let's find the happy medium. And how much complaining do we hear now about those games, all these bowl games outside of the college football playoff? Nobody nobody cares, doesn't matter. These guys opt out. They're just glorified exhibitions, right? You hear that like nonstop during bowl season. I say, who freaking cares? I don't want to hear that. I want to watch college football. But I also, I get like watching these bowl games, all these guys are opting out and you're trying to bet on games. You're looking, you're trying to scroll through Google to try to find who's playing, who's not playing, who's opted out, who hasn't opted out. It's like, it's like a puzzle piece. You're trying to put this together. It's crazy. It's hard. It's difficult. It takes something away from it. Sure. So if we expand the playoffs, you get more meaningful postseason games. You get more excitement. I'm a college football junkie. Like the idea of having quarterfinals and and having these these postseason games more than just a semifinal and a national championship game that's incredibly exciting for me I want to see these games I mean listen to what these matchups would have been this year guys Oregon Missouri incredible 
Oregon, Missouri in the first round, a Penn State, Ohio State rematch in the first round in Columbus, Georgia, Ole Miss rematch in the first round. You got Florida State, Liberty, like who cares about that? But in the second round, you potentially have what? Oregon, Michigan, Alabama, Florida State, Washington, Ohio State, Texas, Georgia. And that's just the quarterfinals. I mean, these are incredible football games. As a college football guy, like, yes, let's freaking go. So I know that not everyone agrees with me, and there are a lot of people who are dreading the 12-team playoff, and another argument I hear is that, well, I mean, once you get past the top four, like, you know, like, no one's really ever going to win national championship, but the 12 seed, 11 seed's never going to win national championship, and I would say, not so fast, man, like, never? Never is a very strong word. Now, is it likely? No, it's not likely, but I'll say never, guys. I know college football and college basketball, it's not an apples-to-apples comparison, but, like, the national champion last year, UConn was the four seed, okay? So, that doesn't mean they were the fourth best team. That means that they were a top 16 team. If they would have had a 12-team college basketball playoff, a 12-team tournament, the eventual national champion wouldn't even have been in it. I mean, we've had eight seeds win the entire national championship, the entire NCAA tournament in basketball. You're telling me Georgia couldn't have gotten hot. I mean, what, we've been a six seed? We couldn't have won national championship if it was a 12-team playoff and we were number six? Oregon couldn't have won national championship? Oregon was a very good football team this year. Ohio State, number seven, couldn't have won national championship this year? Again, it's certainly less likely those teams would win one, and it's not going to happen often, but the word never is a very strong word. I I would certainly push back on that, especially, again, as I mentioned earlier, you might have a a team that has a a situation where they had an injury to a key player and lost a couple games because of that. They they found a way to sneak in the top 12. Maybe they're 11 seed, maybe they're 12 seed, and they can make a run because, hey, they're healthy now, and they can actually win it. So, yeah, I don't don't like this idea that, oh, no, 11, 10, 12 seed, they'll never win it. It's not likely, but... At some point, it would happen. So yeah, I'm all for it, man. I've been waiting for this. I'm very, very excited about it. All right, a couple more questions to run through before we get out of here. Uh, ben has a question about uh, the 2024 defensive line. He asks, what are your realistic expectations for the 2024 Georgia defensive line? Uh, this is uh, not the answer you want, I'm sure, but it's really like TBD to be determined because I don't exactly know what the defensive line will look like. Because there Again, there are still some players out there that might or might not be in the portal right now that I think have a good shot of ending up in the portal and that we will be major players for. So I, I kind of want to see what it looks like post-spring, but as of right now with what we have, I think my expectations are that we'll be slightly better, at least slightly better than we were last year. Because most of the, the best players, the, the biggest contributors on that defense line are back from last year with Nas Stackhouse and Warren Brinson. I know we lose Zion Lowe, but I mean, Zion, he was a solid player, but I mean, he, he we knew what he was. Like, he, he wasn't a difference maker, right? And, and Warren and, and Nas might not be difference makers themselves, but I think they're more so difference makers than, than Zion was. So we had those guys back, right? And they'll be a year better, you're more experienced. So I imagine they'll take at least a slight step forward. Again, I think Nas is going to have a better year this year. I think we'll see the best version of him. I would say the same thing with Warren Brinson. I think Christian Miller has difference maker ability. I think he was playing largely out of position, being forced to play that zero tech last year. I think he's more of a three tech. I've made that clear all season long. I think he'll be able to see more of those opportunities if a guy like Jamal Jarrett can step up and fill maybe a backup role. I mean, who knows? Maybe even take more of a, a co-starter role with Nas Stackhouse at the zero tech. I do hope, and I would like to say I expect, that Jordan Hall will take a step forward in year two in the system. And we certainly need him to. So I think that those freshmen that we were counting on, this year that didn't, you know, they, they like, well, Jerry didn't really play at all, but Hall played some. I think both those guys will be better this year. They really weren't 
major impact players for us last year. I think the returning starters are going to be a step better. And I think a guy like Christian Miller playing in what I believe is more natural position will be a, a huge, a huge boost for this team. I think the Demons line will be better. And that's if we don't add anyone. And Xavier McLeod also coming from South Carolina. I'm cautious on getting too bullish on him in year one because he didn't play a full season for South Carolina. He was basically off the team about halfway through the season in October. So he needs some development. I would expect more from him going into the 2025 season, but I think he can contribute this year. I just don't want to put the expectations too much on this guy right now, but he'll certainly be able to factor in there. And that's again, without adding anyone else from the transfer portal. So I think we're going to be better. How much better? That's the part that's to be determined for me. And we'll have to kind of revisit this after the spring transfer portal window. And finally, let's wrap things up today with a question from our very good friend, Zach, who's been with us for a long, long time. Always appreciate you, Zach. Zach wants to know about the quarterback position at Georgia. He asked, will Carson Beck be the last more traditional pocket passer that Georgia has? Gunnar Stockton and Ryan Puglisi both are more threats running the ball, and it seems we are recruiting more mobile quarterbacks. It's another good question, Zach. I think the answer is we would like to get more athletic at the quarterback position, ideally, but I am going to stop short of saying that Carson is like definitively the last traditional pocket passer that we will have at Georgia. It kind of just depends on how things play out. Like, what does the quarterback recruiting class look like? We're going after some dual threat guys, but we also don't have the the proof, like the proof of concept that we can actually use those dual threat guys the way that other programs can prove that they can use and they've done it before. So you, you kind of need, it's like what comes first. It's the, it's one of those like chicken or the egg concepts, right? It's one of those arguments. But we are trying to get more athletic. Like we are clearly trying to move in that direction by still having quarterbacks that can throw the ball. Like when I, when I hear the term dual threat, sometimes I laugh at that because they just Anyone that plays quarterback that can run, they're, they're labeled a dual threat. But to me, a dual threat is somebody who can run and pass competently. And a lot of these dual threat guys, yeah, they can run, but they can't always pass, right? Like, let's let's take um, Robbie Ashford from Auburn, for example. Dude's a dynamic runner. Dude can't pass to save his life. Jalen Milrow, to a much lesser degree, dynamic, thoroughbred runner. Competent-ish passer, but certainly leaves something to be desired there. So are you a true dual threat? I don't know. That's just one of those things that always kind of is on my mind when I hear that term. But I think ideally, yes, we want to get more athletic. And Kirby understands, like, he's a defensive guy. As a defensive guy, he understands what stresses defenses. And he knows the stress that a mobile quarterback, a true dual-threat quarterback, puts on defenses. So, I, I and we saw, even with Stetson Bennett, like, Stetson, he wasn't a true dual-threat guy, but that dude was athletic. And Carson's done some things with his leg, not to the degree that Stetson did. But I do think that that's, that's something that we would like to do. You know, I, I mean, we, we tried to go that route to a degree with Justin Fields, and, you know, we, we know how that worked out. That's history, whatever. Dwan Mathis, let's not forget about him as well. Like, he was a dual-threat-ish kind of guy. And Gunnar Stockton brought vinegar for both dual-threat guys. They can, they can run, they can throw. So we, we certainly look like we're trending in that direction. And I think that's that's the goal. That'd be the ideal. But I, I don't know if it's necessarily always going to be the case. It kind of just depends on how things shake out, who stays, who transfers, who we're going to get out of, the, out of the high school ranks, who do we get out of the, the portal, who's interested in coming to Georgia. All those things matter. But I do think that we would ideally, again, like to get more athletic at that position. And I personally would like to see that. It's just one more thing that makes your offense even more difficult to defend. But all right, guys, that's it for me. I'm actually going to double check before I get out of here and make sure that Caleb Downs has not hit. So let me check my tech. Nothing on text. Okay. Yeah, it looks like we're good. Looks like we're clear. Nothing yet. And it's a little after eight now. So 
yeah, it looks like maybe not tonight, but again, I, I don't know for sure, for sure, but what I'm hearing is like, yeah, I expect that to happen by like the weekend. And when it happens, you know we got you guys covered. So keep on coming back here for more, guys, because you know that we're going to have you guys covered all off-season long. But all right, guys, I am out of here. Appreciate you. Have a fantastic weekend. Go dogs! Have a big game on the road in Lexington against the Kentucky Wildcats. Again, like I said on last night's episode, I think the most talented team in the country. I don't expect us to win, but hey, you know what? It's going to be fun regardless. Let's see what happens. House money, baby. Also, it's tennis season, kind of, sort of. We had the women, UJ women's tennis team, who I think, once again, is a national title contender. I noticed that for a couple years because we have been national title contenders, made the finals. We made the final four a couple times, and I don't think this year is going to be any different. We are going on the road Sunday to face the defending national champion, North Carolina Tar Heels, the team that knocked us out in the final four last year. It is a huge early season matchup. So I just want to give our ladies a shout out. Love me some Georgia tennis and that's a huge, huge match. But all right, guys, have a great weekend. I'm Tyler. And of course, as always, go dogs.